Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I am not your host, J.D. Flynn, but J.D. is sitting here with me. Hi, J.D. Hey, Ed. You, you, um, that was good. That was a good try, but you have to, uh, you have to do it again. You have to um, tell them who you are. Oh, right. Okay, sorry. This, you see, this is why I don't do it. This is why you do it. Hang on. Let me clear my throat. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm not your host, J.D. Flynn. I am Pillar editor and co-founder Ed Condon, and I'm joined this week by the host of this podcast, Pillar editor and chief and co-founder J.D. Flynn. Hi, J.D. Hey, and that, that was... Hey, hey. I just wanted to mix it up. We did that, everybody, just to mix it up. I I, I wanted to see if Ed, how Ed did launching the show. That was... That was that's fine. I feel like I gave it a, the old college try. I, you know. Hey, everybody! Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation. I'm your host and Pillar editor in chief, JD Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder Ed Condon. Ed, that doesn't that just feel better? I I feel immediately more at ease. Yeah, yeah, me too. Uh, how how are you doing though? I'm doing all right. It is Thursday afternoon. Um, yeah, I'm doing okay. You know, the the waiting continues around here, but otherwise things are motoring along. Yeah, when you say the waiting continues, it is September 16th and um, your baby is almost due. Your baby is due like the last, one of the last days of September. And I mean, look at, you're as big as a house, man. I mean, you... I know. My, mm-hmm. I tell you, the the sympathy weight gain in this house has been pretty <laughs> no, impressive. I, I w- let no one say I'm not taking this seriously. I'm doing my part. Well, um, how, in all seriousness, how, how is Mrs. Condon feeling? Oh, she's feeling fine. She's, um, she's drinking a lot of tea, which is pretty much the standard English response to any situation. Oh, so. sure. Yeah. And is she saying things like, um, keep calm and preggers on and other such, other such things? <laughs> no, although I may no. start, I may start saying that to her. Or, you know, if she doesn't know a lot of the slogans for pregnancy in England, they're, I think I've told you about it before, this documentary that I like about the English royal family called The Crown, in which the filmmakers follow the English royal family for just, I mean, decades, really. It was an incredible project. And I think I've told you about it before. So if she doesn't know some of the expressions, she can watch watch that documentary. And um, Apparently, uh, my wife was telling me that Her Majesty does not actually favor describing people as being pregnant. Oh, but prefers sort of expecting or with child or in, in the, the family, family way. way. In the family yes. way, of course. Yeah, good. Well, I must admit, I myself, you know, the sort of British slang preggers has always seemed a bit crass to me. So I, I, I but I'm a, I'm fussy about those kind of things. Well, it is crass, but you know, this is the, this is the common misunderstanding or misrepresentation in American popular culture of of the UK is that everyone um, speaks with received pronunciation and has a sort of old school BBC vocabulary when, of course, there are, I would argue, probably more distinct regional accents and dialects and vocabularies in the UK than there probably are in the United States. And when you consider the comparable sizes of the country, that's really saying something. So, no, there's there's all kinds over there, JD, and they speak in all kinds of ways. Wonderful. Well, that's great. Um, okay, listen, as much as I'd like to continue talking about that, we have a lot of news, and so we're going to start talking about it. And, uh, and so the big, this sort of big, I guess you might say flash in the pan news that came out this week, which I think we should talk about because it's probably going to have a lot of interesting long-term implications is a set of comments that the Holy Father made on an airplane, uh, yesterday returning from a trip to Hungary and Slovakia. And, and by the way, I just want to say even before we start talking about this, one way that I feel that we have returned to normalcy from the world of the pandemic is that we are going to spend the next hour talking about comments that the Pope made on an airplane. And it's like, you know, hey, we're back to we're back to normal. You know what I mean? We're just jumping in where we probably left off. Nature is healing. Nature is healing. Thank you. That's what I was looking for. Nature is healing uh, because we're going to talk about some comments that the Pope made yesterday on his return trip from Slovakia to Rome, and specifically uh, some comments about a topic that we have been discussing a fair amount already because the U.S. bishops are discussing it, namely the issue of um, Holy Communion and pro-abortion or pro-choice politicians. Maybe you could give a 30,000-foot view of, uh, of of what the Pope said yesterday. 
All right. Well, the Pope was asked about uh, abortion and pro-abortion Catholic politicians and in the context of the Eucharist and admission to communion and things. And he gave, as is the Pope's won't, um, when asked these things, and he's speaking spontaneously and off the cuff, he, he gave quite a, an expansive answer. And he said a number of things that were very interesting. One uh, is he pivoted immediately to the class of people who are excommunicated, which is not a word that I hear come out of Pope Francis's mouth very often. So to hear the Pope talking about excommunication was a very interesting thing indeed. Um, he talked about how even Catholics who are quote unquote excommunicated, and he said, and this is a simple reality that they are outside of the community for a temporary time that is not a punishment, which was great to see the Pope name-checking medicinal remedies, um, saying that this is not a punishment for them, but this is a time away for them to understand something and to be brought back, and that there needs to be pastoral closeness even to the excommunicated in all of this, um, and that while communion is not a prize for the perfect, you have to be in communion with the church to receive communion. And so it's not possible for someone who is outside of the community of the church, having placed themselves there, to receive communion. Um, and in relation to abortion, he repeated some of his earlier comments and observations about uh, abortion, which he again likened to the hiring of a hitman to solve a problem. Um, he said every abortion is a homicide and that there are no middle words for this, that there can be no sort of fudging of the issue, no mealy-mouthed alternative terminology, that this is the ending of an innocent human life and nothing less than that, and that the church cannot and will not ever move to a um, a stance of tacit acceptance, let alone endorsement of legal protections for abortion, because to do so would be to accept everyday homicide. Um, he gave, you know, a, a really great answer, I thought, a very helpful, clarifying answer. He went on to make clear that although there was a particular context to the question he was asked, he was not speaking with direct reference to any politician or any U.S. politician and not the president, because he doesn't know the details of individual cases there. And so obviously... You shouldn't speak to the details of individual cases if you don't understand them, and that's great. And he stressed that for Catholics in such a position— Which um, position? Just to— To be extremely pro-abortion and to be outside of the community of the church as a result, that it was important that bishops, pastors, treat them pastorally. That it's not a question of deploying the language of condemnation and running around banging the drum saying, you know— you're cast out into outer darkness and all this sort of thing, but to have a pastoral closeness, even, as he said, to the excommunicated. Um, again, interesting that the Pope chose to use the language of the excommunicated in relation to this um, and saying basically that you are, you know, the, the bishops are pastors for those members of their flock who have strayed out as much as those who have remained in. And so there has to be a pastoral tone to the engagement with them. Although, he said, the theological reality of all of this is, and the word he used was simple, <laughs> that it's a simple reality, that it's not a pro that there isn't a problem or challenge of dealing with um, questions around abortion like this, that the theological reality is very simple, which I thought was helpful and clarifying. And of course, none of this is... Um, is groundbreaking that this is this has always been the teaching of the church. You know, there was a lot of discussion ahead of the USCCB meeting in June about people who were saying that, oh well, the U.S. Bishops Conference is trying to come up with a national policy on the denial of communion for politicians like Joe Biden and everything. And of course, they weren't. <laughs> this this is known that the letter from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith acknowledged various documents and conversations coming out of the USCCB acknowledged that there was no it wasn't possible uh, in a canonical sense for the USCCB to pass a, a binding norm at the national level on this sort of thing, that this is the job of individual bishops, that they are the ones who are responsible for doing this in their diocese. Now, the USCCB can and is drafting a document on the Eucharist, which will include a section on so-called Eucharistic coherence and suitability for reception and everything. And I'm sure that will be vigorously deba debated at the USCCB meeting in November. But all that is going to do is be a sort of expression of common value and purpose, not a binding national policy or norm. Um, but for the Pope to weigh in in this way, I, I think I, I struggle to find a good faith way of reading what the Pope said um, and conclude anything other than the question of, well, should pro-abortion politicians be receiving communion? I mean, that answer to me seems about as explicitly closed as it's possible to be at this point. The Pope was pretty clear that if you're championing legal abortion, you're championing daily homicide. And 
those who do so are outside of the community of the church and those outside of communion with the church can't receive communion. And it is incumbent on the bishops saving all of that as a simple theological truth, as the Pope called it, for the bishops to still have a pastoral concern for those members of their flock who have strayed. Well, you know, yeah, I mean, I I tried to, you know, I... (laughs) I, I tried to to sort of see, okay, um, I, I see how I read this, and, and how I read this is the Pope saying, people who are advocating for legal protection of abortion um, find themselves, as he says, sort of temporarily outside of the communion of the church. And and he sort of takes it as a given. He, he says it explicitly, but sort of in a way that it's a given. People in that situation can't receive the Eucharist. I mean, he just sort of says it and then moves on, not as if that would be itself the groundbreaking aspect of what he's saying. It seems to me that what the Pope seems to think is the important aspect of what he has to say is, but that doesn't mean they're written off, but that doesn't mean they're, you know, cast from the light of <laughs> of the church, you know, locked from the doors and banished and tarred and feathered. Rather, that um, pastors should have an ongoing relationship with them. You know, he does say, the Pope says, you know, if we just, if I just say this person can receive and this person can't receive, this be- can become sort of casuistic and um, we lose sight of the the pastoral reality um, of the church's relationship with people whom she is accompanying, as the Pope says, with closeness, compassion, and tenderness towards conversion and calling towards conversion and, and those kinds of things. But he does sort of take as a given the sort of baseline, oh, it, such a person wouldn't receive the Eucharist. And and actually, that's interesting because it's consistent with what the Pope in other contexts has said about the, about the Eucharist when he was Bishop of Buenos Aires and he wrote uh, or was sort of the principal drafter of this sort of famous document called the Aparacita document, which is a document that kind of um, was an expression of pastoral ministry, a kind of state of the church, if you will, by the conferences, the Confederation of Conferences of, of Latin America, South and Latin American bishops. It says a similar thing that, you know, pro-abortion politicians shouldn't receive Holy Communion. And so it, it's not as if for him that's, it's, um, that's the groundbreaking part, it's the pastoral care that is. And, you know, one thing that I was reminded of recently is, um, is just how different... Uh, this is not meant to be a defense, you know, just sort of an um, a Pollyannish defense of Pope Francis, and um, and 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 please stop me if it sounds like like one. But but one thing I was reminded of recently is how different a frame of reference the Pope comes from at times when he's talking, and how how much that can be a challenge from us. And, and here's what I mean: a friend of mine who is indeed himself South American pointed out to me that the Church in South America, having sort of um, established its place in civil society as an institution at the, ta- at the same time that, you know, contemporary South American civil societies were themselves being established. So that the church has been sort of hand in hand with the government from the establishment of the, of the various republics of South America. And you, indeed, even before that, that the church was sort of hand in hand with the crown in, in various ways means that the church just has a very different place in society than we often think of it, that it is perceived to be an institution of power and privilege more frequently than it is here, because indeed it is so sort of cemented into the social fabric of the country in that way. And that as a consequence of that, it is more frequent that you would find priests who would be draconian in sort of their administration of spiritual matters. The Pope often seems to be sort of... um, even in this case, you know, why he wants to emphasize, oh, but keeping their pastor, keeping their pastor. And he, he seems often to be sort of emphasizing, but whatever the situation is with this person or that person, we have to keep being their pastor and keep accompanying them. And for us, that seems foreign because... We can't um, imagine them not being we so. We can't imagine them not being so. And in many cases, the, the flaws of the contemporary American Catholic experience are often a sort of um, permissive sense of what it means to be pastoral, sort of over-pastoring, if you will, right? The notion of a draconian little tyrant... Um, is a little bit less familiar to us in the sense of the way that he would relate to people about these sacramental matters. Now, there are other ways in which he may well be a little tyrant, but the way in which the pastor sort of um, being draconian about these sacramental things seems a little bit less familiar to us, and so the Pope's sort of admonition doesn't fit into our context. And, and you know, sometimes I think that framework is overused um, to kind of explain what the Pope is saying, but here it seems to me to make sense. I would agree with that. And it's also, I mean, you talk about we we need to bear in mind that the context in which the Pope has lived his priestly career prior to his election. Um, you know, he, he said in the course of the, of the press conference on the papal plane that he had never himself denied anyone communion. Now there were immediate um, selective and tendentious presentations of this statement to say, so the Pope is by proxy saying you should never refuse communion to a pro-abortion politician. But really the Pope was just simply responding to the question he was given and saying, well, I never have, but if you were a priest in Argentina in the 1980s and 90s, you would never encounter a pro-abortion politician. 
let alone one presenting himself for communion. It's just not a reality which you would deal with. You know, the Pope said he, you know, as far as he was aware, he, you know, he accidentally gave communion to a Jewish woman once, and that was that was the most that he could remember of it. But again, this says more about the cultural context in which he was exercising his priestly ministry than it does about his sort of, you know, and this is the example I'm giving you, never refuse anyone. On the contrary, he, you know, was very clear in, in his answer saying, you can't receive communion if you're outside of communion with the church. That's just, again, he called That's it a simple it theological yeah, yeah, yeah. reality. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. it's just what it is. Yeah. Now, again, I think that that sort of framework for understanding the Pope at times can be used to excuse certain things, or sometimes it's it's too simplistic. And there are times when the Pope, even if he's coming from that framework, I think many people say is often sort of hard on diocesan priests in a way that expects that always to be the case from them, even when it's not reality. And and there are people who say, well, maybe that even impacted sort of the read of Traditionis Custodes, which limited the extraordinary form and these kinds of things. So I'm not saying that's always sort of in a, um, that place, that starting point is always sort of um, a way in which the Pope sort of is not accountable or in a way in which we can't sort of criticize if the Pope seems unduly critical of of, of priests or, or, or things like that. But at the same time, it does seem to me to be the operative thing here. And I think that's sort of worth understanding. I also think... It's true that even even in our own framework, there is a way in which um, people who are frustrated by pro-abortion politicians and are like, well, you know, the bishops need to just prohibit them all from Holy Communion and, and that's that and call a spade a spade and you can't be Catholic if you're these ways. There is a way in which we can have a frustration um, or a, a response that writes off that ongoing need for pastoral care ourselves, right? In which we can be sort of reactive to our anger that kind of writes that off. So, you know, there's something there, there's something there too, I suppose, but... yeah. But there's also, we have a tendency to... Uh, you mean you, we, I, you and me, or...? No, I, I mean, we as in, for example, American Catholics, the Church in the United States, uh, as, a, as a cultural reality, tend to interpret words in a very, um, very particular, I would argue, very misapplied way. So, for example, when the Pope says, as he did, abortion for the Church should not be a political matter. Don't make this a political matter. This is a pastoral issue. You know, the Pope says, it's not, don't, don't get into politics. It's about pastoral care. There is an entire swath of American Catholicism that hears that and go, aha, he said, don't be political. So that means, in in effect, never do anything public. You should be pastoral. And pastoral means private and nice and permissive and, you know, accommodating and uh, non-confrontational and everything. And that's not what these words mean at all. I mean, it's not what they mean in the dictionary. And it's not what they mean in the mind of the church. That to be pastoral means to have a mind for the care of the individual. That to not be political means don't get involved in politics. So yeah, you shouldn't have Catholic priests or bishops standing up at political rallies saying, vote for this party because of this particular teaching of the church or whatever else, for sure. But that doesn't mean that to say, well, you can't possibly in a paternal way correct or discipline a member of your flock because they're a politician and then that would be politics is insane. What what constitutes treating abortion as a political issue for a Catholic bishop, I would argue, is to say, well, the politics of this situation trump my pastoral responsibility to correct this individual. To say, I'm afraid of the optics of being accused of getting involved in politics. So if you reach a certain level of elected office, you basically get a pass from my pastoral care and my concern for your soul and you're on your own. That's being political with the faith. That's being political with the Catholicism of pro-abortion Catholic politicians is to say, well, they are political and whatever they are doing is ipso facto political. And so I can't touch that because to touch something that they are doing in the political sphere is therefore political on my part, which is just nonsense. What that basically says is anything that our political system claims for itself as an issue, the church throws its hands away from which is nonsense. We don't do this in any other realm of public policy. Do we say, oh, you can't do that. The church is playing politics. Where the church has a clear moral imperative, the bishops speak with authority. We don't do this on immigration. Immigration is a very political issue in in, in our society. But the church doesn't say, well, immigration is politics. So we aren't going to, you know, for example, go to a border wall and get down on our knees and pray as one one Catholic bishop has done. Or expend millions of dollars and coordinate the work of Catholic charities in this country to welcome immigrants into this country and help resettle them. For example, well, you know, some politician who is opposed to sort of um, a just immigration policy, no one says, well, you know, he's personally against the mistreatment of um, asylum seekers, but he doesn't want to impose that on on the rest of us. I mean, no one sort of looks at that as a reasonable way of parsing the difference between personal morality and public life. Absolutely. And no one accuses bishops when they challenge politicians for the inhumane treatment of our neighbors in that sense and says, well, you're just being political. You can't do that. Immigration is politics. No. 
human society is human society. Just because we choose to make a political issue out of it doesn't mean the church can only touch that issue in a political way. On the contrary, there are many, many pastoral ways to get for the church to address these issues and to address Catholics' individual behavior with regard to these issues. And just because they happen to be a politician doesn't mean that anything you do, therefore, is political. Well, actually, I mean, there are people, right, who I'm, I'm raising this to make a point. There are people who, when the bishops speak about immigration, say, oh, the bishops are just, you know, being political and, and the bishops are should not be getting involved in politics in these ways. Right, and, but they're and, wrong, so well, I was ignoring well, them. Well, the, but there, there is, in fact, a distinction that's worth making and worth understanding, and it's this. Um, on the issue of uh, immigration, the church says to us, um, these are just principles with regard to immigration. Persons have a right to leave a, an, an unjust situation or to seek a better situation for themselves or the, their families. Persons have a right to, to leave an unjust economic situation or to seek better uh, economic situation for their for their families. States have an obligation to accept immigrants from other places insofar as they can do so without sort of causing undue harm to themselves. Right? I mean, there are, there are a set of principles. States have an obligation to help those, uh, you know, fellow states nations. States also have a right and to, obligation right, to maintain borders. To maintain borders. Right? States have an obligation to help other nations which are in crisis in order to achieve stability because people have um, a, a right for repatriation if it's possible, etc. I mean, there are a set of, set of principles that the church outlines about what the what aspects of just immigration policy are. Um, within that framework, it is possible for Catholics, Catholic politicians to disagree about how many visa, right, how many temporary worker visas should, should the state issue this year? X number or X, X times two number, right? I mean, it is possible for Catholics to sort of disagree about that. And when the church weighs in on that, when sort of the U.S. Bishops Conference or something weigh in on that, um, they're doing so themselves, weighing in with a studied opinion, hopefully, on a matter of prudential judgment. Now, if, they, if they're if they setting the boundaries, if they're saying thinking about immigration in this way is unjust, thinking about immigration in that way is just, that's not weighing in on a matter of prudential judgment. But if they're weighing in sort of on the particulars of policy with regard to something like immigration, then they're weighing in on something about which people of goodwill using the church's framework for assessing a moral issue might find themselves in sort of different prudential disagreements, right? But the reason why abortion is different is because the church says rather definitively um, it is unjust for abortion to be legal. Um, a just state cannot permit um, cannot permit the legal protection of abortion. Um, it is, you know, a, a state cannot legitimately permit um, the practice of abortion. And so the church has a clear sort of black and white um, there that is that is a, a binary. Um, and in that way, things are different. The church is sort of emphatic. It is a just state cannot have, um, uh, you know, cannot offer legal protection to abortion. On matters of, of that nature, it seems to me, in fact, that the church has more of a right um, to speak into things for which she might be accused of being political than on matters for which there is room for prudent reflection within a just moral framework and sort of church authorities are weighing in on their own prudent reflection within a just moral framework. Does that make sense? It does. But, but I mean, again, there are there are ways in which the church could and must not speak politically about abortion. And one of those ways would be to, for example, take partisan sides. Yeah. No, but the, the, yeah. The, no, what the church can do and does do and should do, and perhaps should even in some cases in this country do with better clarity, is to announce that there are certain what the CDF has called in letters to the USCCB on the matter, non-negotiable principles. And one of those non-negotiable principles is the defense of human life, including against the abomination of abortion. Which, again, the church says in a very specific way, laws which allow for legal protection of abortion are themselves unjust. But they're not just unjust. They are. They uh, the, the church teaches that they undercut the legitimacy yes, of the government do, and the right. society. I mean, yes. that they aren't just. It's not an absence of justice. It is counter to justice. It sure. is corrosive of society. It is corrosive to the legitimacy of a society to have this. And there's nothing wrong with the church saying that. In fact, the church has to say that because that is part of its prophetic mission. What the church doesn't say, is, you know, go out there and vote for this congressman and not that one. Right. Yeah, I think that's right. Just to offer a little caveat before we go on to talk about the coverage, just to offer a little caveat about sort of what I'm saying about prudential judgment and what I'm not. Um, often it is my observation that when people talk about sort of politics and issues of prudential judgment with regard to church teaching, those issues are framed in such a way as if because there are issues of prudential judgment, the church has nothing to say about them or a person could legitimately reach any conclusion whatsoever. So, for example, the church says in... in um, and other places that uh, states have an obligation to ensure affordable access to health care, right? So the church says that and how affordable access to health care is ensured for all people is is a matter that can be worked out in potential judgment. But a person couldn't just say, I, I've not encountered a person who would say this, which is why I've taken this example, but a person couldn't just say, 
No, I don't think it is. I don't think it is the government's job. Maybe I have encountered a person who would say this. A person couldn't just say, no, I don't think it is the government's job in any way whatsoever to ensure that people have affordable access to healthcare, survival of the fittest, right? I mean, and, and if you were challenged on that, um, you know, if, if one were challenged on that, they couldn't say, well, it's a matter of prudential judgment. Healthcare is a matter of prudential judgment. That's not what prudential judgment means. What prudential judgment means is what kind of system should we have to ensure that this goal, which is a mandate of justice, affordable access to healthcare for all, um, is is uh, is achieved. And and there can be a sort of wide variety of, of, um, of opinions on what sort of system we ought to have or what sort of laws we ought to have to, to achieve that. But the notion that we don't have to achieve this end, which is a matter of justice, um, is not itself the question of prudential judgment, only the sort of roadmap by which one gets there. Yes. Yes. And I bring that up because I think often that sort of idea of prudential judgment is, um, is, is rather, uh, rather grievously misunderstood or misrepresented. Yes, I, I would agree with that. Prudential judgment means your judgment has to actually also be prudential. It just right. can't be, well, I think so, well, I, therefore. Right, right exactly. It's, it's, not a, it's not an absolute enfranchisement of personal discernment. Yeah, that's, that is exactly right. That's, that's precisely what I wanted to say, is that it's not a matter on which the church has nothing to say. It's a matter on which the church says this end must be achieved in order to achieve justice. Now, how are you going to achieve the end? Well, you're going to achieve the end By according to By justifying the means. <laughs> um, you're going to achieve the end according to a solution which takes into account the circumstances of time and place, which is why the church wouldn't say um, everyone has a right to affordable access to health care. The government has an obligation to ensure that people have uh, affordable access to health care. Therefore, every government must have X system or Y system. The church would not say that because it's not legitimately sort of responsive to circumstances of time and place. That's where the, uh, the matters of prudential judgment comes in. And one person might say this system and one person might say that system. But the notion that we ought not be achieving the end itself um, is, not, is not sort of up for, quote unquote, prudential judgment. That is correct. Yes. Okay. Let's go back to the coverage of the papal thing, because I was just fascinated yesterday. So yesterday the Pope says this this stuff, which is um, I, it, the answer of a pastor. Well, this is what the church says, but you got you, you have to approach it like a pastor and, and you know, kind uh, of walk through that. Yes. Not this is what the church says, but this is what the church says and. And. Sure. Yeah. There, um, there's no qualifier or contradiction. The two, and, and this I would argue is an important point that Pope Francis hasn't acknowledged the teaching of the church and then proposed a but, a qualifier, a counterfactual. He has expanded on it. It's an and. It is It is a here's what the church teaches and here's what you do with that. Here's how we live that. Not here's what the church teaches, but I don't mean it. There, there was no but in, in the Pope, you know, literal or figurative. There was no but in what the Pope was proposing with regard to the Church's teaching on abortion, on being in a state of manifest grave sin, even um, in, in his invocation of the of the category of uh, the, the excommunicated, those out of communion with the Church. It wasn't, it wasn't a this but, it was a this so. And, you know, I, I found that encouraging. I, you know, I, I, it, let's just say, since you wanted to talk about coverage of, uh, of the but, Pope's okay, remarks, that's I would fair, say because there was one a of the lot misinterpretations of was there. the but, right? Yeah, yeah. So there were a lot of interpretations of this. So the most sort of obviously galling misinterpretations of it were those which took, you know, Pope says he has never denied anyone Holy Communion and left out. Pope says no one in this situation has ever presented themselves for Holy Communion. Um, th- those were sort of the most galling, right? Or like Pope says be pastors, not um, condemners, right? Which takes all of the context of that away, right? Th- those were the most sort of obviously galling um, in, in misinterpretations. But then there were other misinterpretations that I think would go closer to my sort of rightly corrected words. Um, pope says X, but, which might say, yeah, the Pope said um, that abortion is a grave moral evil and that someone who um, advocates for it finds himself, as he says, temporarily outside of the church. But he also says be a pastor as if that, uh, he also says be a pastor means wink, 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 nod, nod. He doesn't mean that top stuff. He means be permissive in the way that we too often have experienced, perhaps not now, but in the way that we too often have experienced the notion of pastoral here in in the good old United States. Yes, I would agree wholeheartedly. I mean, most of the, I think you actually said something about this on Twitter at the time as this was all happening that, you know, one of the the drawback of the way in which the Pope, when handling these sorts of questions off the cuff, and so he gives expansive answers and thinks in whole paragraphs and moves from one um, one train of thought to another and back again, and you know just basically tells people what he thinks as he's thinking it, which I think is a wonderful thing, and you know taken as a whole provides a very clear and coherent um, picture of of what the Pope 
things and what the church teaches on, on an issue like this. But of course, if you're going to give a long answer, it's going to lend itself to cherry-picked sound right. bites. Yeah, that's right. And the, I would argue, incredibly deliberately tendentious misrepresentation of <laughs> what the Pope said for the effect of, to, to know really, I mean, th- this is the thing that annoys me is, you know, you see this kind of rubbish from the New York Times and the Washington Post, and you, know, you kind of expect it. Um, but what I understand is like, what's in it for them? Like the Pope affirms church teaching on abortion. Like who in their core readership right. is, you know, on tender hooks about, you know, what, well, what is Pope Francis saying right now? Like no one, like they went out of their way to misrepresent something the Pope said on a well-established, universally understood bit of church teaching. And they did it for only one reason, which is to try and prop up the absurd counterfactual notion that it's totally cool to be President Joe Biden and to say, I don't believe that life begins at conception. I do believe there should be unfettered access to abortion enshrined in federal law. And I'm a devout and practicing Catholic. Give me communion on Sunday. That is the only purpose of that. That's the only purpose of their coverage was to obscure a clear truth articulated by the Pope. That that is misinformation. That yeah, is the intention and the effect. I think that is so. Um, and I think it was absolutely pervasive. And then I think, um, and, and I think that, you know, I think sort of from big major national media outlets, okay, that's to be expected. More sort of frustrating for me or pernicious or galling for me is um, the way in which um, uh, the way in which Catholic sort of fig- media figures or commentators or those who are sort of pointing in the direct, you know, who, whose whose audience is within the church would um, would offer an interpretation that it seems is like this permissive. Oh, it's it's not something that, you, but you have to be a pastor, so don't worry about any of that stuff. Kind of interpretation. Don't sit down and engage with the person and make assessments of their obstinacy and talk with them about the consequences of that and call them to conversion. Rather, oh, you got to be a pastor, so let it go. M- more frustrating for me is the um, is not the that big national media outlets sort of cherry-picked the things that fit their worldview, but the way in which Catholic-facing um, commentators and outlets and things like that would uh, would frame this in such a way as to, I think, try to influence the discussion of the U.S. bishops at the November meeting of, of the Bishops' Conference, because it seems to me, obviously, every single word that the Pope said is going to be um, bandied about at the meeting of the U.S. Bishops' Conference in November when they discuss their drafted uh, document on what they're calling Eucharistic coherence and the, and, and the section on sort of like exhorting people who are not living in accord with the church's teachings not to receive Holy Communion. And every single section, it seems to me, is going to be bandied about in a mostly political way. And here's what I mean. If the U.S. Bishops made a distillation of what Pope Francis said yesterday and sort of wrote that down and that was their chapter, pretty damn good, it seems to me. It would be... It would be a parasita. Yeah, it would be a parasita. It would be the paragraph in a parasita. I suppose that's true, with an exhortation to sort of um, address these matters in a pastoral way and to kind of, uh, by which it means a persistent and personal and human way in, in which one is called a conversion and one accompanies a person sort of out of the sense of It means you do it by calling them or meeting right. with them or writing them a personal letter and not via press release. That's what it means. Right, exactly. And I would say insofar as is possible, meeting with them all the more. Um yeah, so if if that were to happen, it would be, I think, a, a pretty good uh, encapsulation of what the church teaches, and and one that's analogous to what's in a parasita. But instead, I think even in that meeting, and um, in some cases, in good faith by those who don't un, uh, who who have not t- wholly understood what the pope said, and in some cases by those who are proof texting the pope, um, lots of phrases will be thrown around, probably ad nauseum, and you'll probably be nauseated about it, and you'll probably talk about it a great deal in order to sort of advance the position of some bishops that. You know, we absolutely can't say anything about this issue of people who are not living in accord with the church's teaching, including pro-abortion politicians and Holy Communion. That's not for us to talk about. That's not for us to deal with. We can't have anything. If, if people misunderstand it, it will make us seem like we're outside of communion with Pope Francis. And then at the same time, I also think there will be people who um, only want to use the part of the discussion in which Pope Francis says very strong words against abortion and are less interested in the Pope's sort of pastoral counsel um, about how to sort of engage with the person who finds himself in this situation and the disposition of charity that that requires. Yes. But I think the other thing is we're going to, this is in a sense, the sort of statement that one probably shouldn't make because it's of its nature unfalsifiable, but it would be my expectation that while some bishops take the microphone in Baltimore in November to hector their brother bishops about the need to be pastoral 
And that means you basically never say a politician's name out mm-hmm. loud. Yeah, and Pope Francis or do said it, it, and aren't we yeah. in community with Pope Francis? Yeah. And the people, I, I suspect that amongst the bishops that they will be either physically or metaphorically wagging their finger at, saying, you need to be pastoral. Among those bishops will be those who have been probably behind closed doors exceedingly pastoral with Catholic politicians who are pro-abortion in, in their territory that will have written them heartfelt and private letters you know, trying desperately to make them see the error of their ways. We'll have been offering on a serial basis to meet with them personally and trying very, very, very hard to, exactly as the Pope said, bring them back into the fold of the church. And they will have tried to do all that. But you know what? They won't be able to say anything about it. And they'll stand there and have another bishop wag his finger in their face saying, well, mm-hmm, you doctrinaire mm-hmm. or whatever, you need yeah, to yeah. be pastoral. You need to listen yeah. to the Pope. When probably it will be the bishops wagging their finger and saying, you need to have a pastoral approach to these politicians who will never have made a single pastoral gesture to a pro-choice politician in their entire Episcopal career. It will never have occurred to them to seek a meeting with a pro-choice Catholic politician in their diocese and attempt to sway them away from their mistakes. Yeah, but that to them is that is the effective definition of quote unquote pastoral is you don't do anything. You don't do, you leave you them don't do anything. You don't say. And I want to be careful, right? I, I'm I don't want to both sides it in a way that's just like well, both sides will use this inappropriately because I I actually I don't think it will be proportionally both sided. Um, I I I just don't. I I think if there'll you play be one the, or two. Pope, the Pope said we need to be pastoral. If you put that on a bingo card or make that a drinking game, fifty times now. Yeah. Ones who said, well, we need to do, you know, we need to do exactly what I think we need to do because the Pope said abortion is um, daily homicide. I think I think we'll hear a little bit of that, but it, it would seem to me that it, it, it will not be a proportionate both sides. And it, But it would seem to me that bishops who want to advance the discussion would do well to be prepared to sort of call for a, a wholesale um, taking up of what the Pope, uh, you know, of what the Pope said, which is probably a good sort of political move because it would be hard to... <laughs> It would be hard to get anyone to speak against it, um, but um, you know, so probably a good strategic move. But also because the text itself, I think, is um, is close to what many of the bishops have said they want to see the thing say. Now, I see bi- people saying, commentators saying, "Well, see, this means that the USCCB can't prohibit anybody from holy communion." Well, no. The Holy Pardon C- my language, C- but C- no shit. Able to Nobody ever from said that the USCCB was going to prohibit anyone from Holy Communion. And that was but always again, this, sort of a well, straw this man. this has been the pathetic so, and straw that's man the way in which, right, And that's the way in which people are saying the Pope smacks down U.S. bishops because he tells them the USCCB, you know, he suggests the USCCB can't uh, do this. And it's between a pastor, which would be a pastor and a bishop, a pastor and, and a Catholic. Yeah, well... <laughs> That's what anybody who sort of knows what the church is saying. That's what Archbishop you know, Gomez told Cardinal Ladaria when he right? told I mean, them what yeah. the U.S. bishops got up to. It's what right. Cardinal Ladaria confirmed to Archbishop Gomez when he wrote yeah. back. It's what. Yeah, that's what everybody who knows anything has been saying all along, and yet that is one of the pernicious ways I think in which the Pope's words are sort of being weaponized against a straw man. See, the Pope said that they can't, um, that the USCCB can't smack down Biden. Well. It was never the USCCB's intention or never within the competency of the USCCB to prohibit Biden from Holy Communion. And if they were suggesting that they would, you and I, just because we like good order and good governance, would be railing against it. It would really hack us off. Yep. Yep. It would really, really hack me off, actually. If anyone at the USCCB tabled any kind of By document... By the way, because that is English, when Ed says tabled, he doesn't mean what we think tabled means, which is to say put something aside. He means brought something up for discussion. Just Yes. You see, a little bit in up. proper parliamentary language, oh, JD, when okay, you table something, you put it on the table of the house for that debate well and discussion. So, but let's say put it on the table and then tabled, because in the vernacular of the peasantry here in the good old US of A, those things are different. Robert's rules are a vandalism. I lo- of- actually, I love Robert's rules. I, I As procedure, they're fine, but their terminology is... Bomb. Nevertheless, this is this is America. Anyway, if it were proposed to have some sort of resolution, some sort of policy, some sort of amendment, some sort of document that purported to have a national policy on who can and cannot receive communion or this individual, how to handle a particular individual, I would be lighting my hair on fire saying you may not do this. You cannot do this. This is impossible. This is beyond all possible scope. Because you know what? I happen to have and I've said this before and I've written about this before, so I'm not, you know, outing myself here in any way. I have a healthy level of skepticism for the entire concept of bishops' conferences. You do, this and actually, not... I, I, you, you do. Mm-hmm. 
It's yeah. not a. This is not a reflection on the USCCB in particular. This is a generally held thing that they are a creature of merely ecclesiastical law, and I question the usefulness of that creature. Well, and you know that's interesting because the level of energy, the amount of time and energy that has gone into a debate by U.S. bishops about what a document should say, that any one of them could publish a document saying exactly what it is that they want to say on any given day, is crazy to me. I I, I get it. I think you know. I I, I get it. Sucking up the oxygen and momentum is part of the problem but of bishops' conferences. It's amazing to me because they are. The False bishops magnet. are debating what they think the document should say. And were it me, were I a bishop, I might sort of weigh in on that document. But well before that, i just write the document that I wanted. And if, exactly. if another bishop wrote the document that he wanted, well, okay. And this I'm, is my I'm entrusted by God with the administration criticism. of my diocese, right? I, I, this, it would be like yeah. getting together with all the dads on my block and then debating what time bedtime should be. It's like, or what, or what we should tell our kids about bedtime. It's like, okay, that's sort of all well and good. And I myself find the debate interesting and these kinds of things as sort of a sport. But the most important thing that I can do is just set the rules for my own house. Exactly. But again, this is one of my chief criticisms of the concept of bishops' conferences, is that they soak up the oxygen and energy on any particular issue, usually to an end that is at best neutral. And that, you yeah, know, we, talk, we they talked also about this have the inter- consequence to co- to cause great. I mean, the interesting thing is, sure, I think the, the, I think the, the, bishops the, 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 engage the, the, with them because they also have the consequence to do great damage. And co- I mean, back to your point about the synod, yes, great. They damage. also have the consequence to cause great scandal and do great damage. And so, good bishops engage with them, which, by the way, is part of the reason why I've been saying people should engage in the synod and synodality if they're invited to, because um, at the local level, it could end up being a useful and fruitful thing if people actually jump in and participate about it. Because you're ooh, right that it otherwise ooh, has the potential ooh, to do ooh. other things. I'm, I'm not advocating Episcopal boycott of bishops' conferences. <laughs> I I, I'm not saying I know. I non-participation. Know. Yeah. I, on the contrary, I'm part of my criticism of the structural concept of bishop national bishops' conferences mm-hmm. is that they they have a disproportionate ability to cause harm when inappropriately used or constituted or directed in their efforts, and they also have a tendency to suck up all the oxygen and momentum on any particular issue, which would be better directed either at the metropolitan level, the provincial level, or at the level of the ordinary diocese, which is where most of the stuff is supposed to be handled anyway. Now, it's not to say that bishops' conferences don't do a lot of good work in the things that they are actually supposed to do, like the coordination of national charitable endeavors and things like that. That is all excellent. Love it. Great stuff. I just wonder if National bishops' conferences, as currently constituted in most parts of the world, are not maybe, I don't want to say unfit for purpose, but not perfectly calibrated to their intended purposes. I think that may well be a fair way to say it. And with that, all of the other things that I had on the list uh, for us to talk about probably need to be tabled. Ah, great. I'm ready. (laughs) Let's do it. <laughs> By which I mean we'll have to discuss them at another time because we are coming to the end of our time. We've got we've got some time. We've got we got some time. Yeah, we're at this point. This is a podcast point. This is a podcast point. We're at this point where we um, we have a little bit of time, but not enough time to dive into anything uh, of with with substance and um, and and yet a few more minutes. It's it's really the perfect amount of time in my view for a game. Okay, we can do a game. Would you like to play a game? Sure, I'd love to play a game. Okay. And I was, uh, you know, I, uh, as you probably know, you are, um, your wife rather is going to have a baby soon. I am um, aware of that. Yes. Good. I'm glad you should, you should be aware of it. Um, so insofar as you're aware of that, um, your wife, I'm given to understand, according to you, recently was thrown by her friends uh, or colleagues um, a baby shower. In fact, I had the honor of attending a sort of work baby shower uh, for your wife, your wife, your wife's colleagues sort of threw a baby, a work baby shower for her. And, um, and she was kind enough. I was in town and she was kind enough to invite me. And, uh, and so, um, I know that your wife had that baby shower and a couple of others, but there's really no analog for men, um, that I can think of that is sort of, um, commonly practiced, at least insofar as I know. And, And insofar as I know, no one has thrown you a baby shower or steam of any kind. No, no, no. I haven't and, had a baby schwitz or or whatever. The, or whatever it is that people do. And insofar yeah. as I know, I, I'm speculating it that apart from that one little shower of your wife of your wife that, that I attended with you, you you've probably not been to very many baby showers. Oh Lord, no. Yeah, I didn't think that was the case. Well, I have probably been to slightly more baby showers than you. Um, I, I would guess. I'm um, willing to. I'm willing to see that. Yeah, or at least sort of like 
left for a baby for a baby shower to take place in my home and then by the time i got back it was sort of still going on so kind of like hung out in the kitchen and picked at the food and hoping i would not get in trouble for picking at the food i've probably done that more frequently than you because i think my wife has thrown a fair number of such such gatherings i i stipulated no, okay fair and one of the things that happens at baby showers that you might not be aware of is that um, baby showers are populated they're resplendent with baby themed games of all kinds some like sort of pin the tail on the baby kind of games insofar as i know and again i'm always getting this from the other room but um yeah guess how many um jelly beans are in the baby bottle which you shouldn't give a baby jelly beans i learned when i had a baby um and also i want to make a note of that yeah you should you should um and what about using marrow bones as a teething ring is that is that cool uh i mean suck the marrow out first why but that's that's very healthy yeah, but I mean, do you really want to give it to a baby who's not going to appreciate it? I, this is purely nutritional value. I mean, that stuff is basically, you know, it's, it's got to be sort of growth accelerant. I mean, that's that's the good stuff. You do you do what makes you happy. Well, I I intend to so far as I can. I also, you know, I don't want to I don't want to sure, accidentally you know, find that. out that but children can. That's not something that happens at a baby shower. I, right. Okay. Sorry. That's not something that happens. I'm just at a baby. I'm trying to learn, JD. I'm trying to benefit from your your years of parental experience. Well, here. what we're talking about right now are my minutes of baby shower experience which are slightly more baby shower okay. experience than you have games uh, one time i saw a game where there were like different um foods inside diapers and women had to sort of guess what they were by this it was really weird um what i have not seen a lot of our oh, i'm baby- making a face i don't oh what i have not seen a lot of but would seem most appropriate and more appropriate to us are baby trivia games but i like <laughs> famous baby <laughs> Something like that. I like subjecting you to to trivia of various kinds. And so today um, we're going to play a game called How Well Do You Know Your Baby? Well, not very well at all. I mean, we haven't haven't met yet. But yeah, okay, cool. And this is not, I just want to be clear. I now realize as I say the title out loud that I could have done a game that was sort of rooted in embryology where I said, you know, at six weeks development, your baby was the size of a blank and you filled in the blank or something like that or you know your baby had fully formed eyes by x time i could have done that i could have made an embryology game but i didn't do that in, in retrospect perhaps i should have but i didn't instead i just have some baby related trivia questions so more like how well do you know trivia about the word baby in general i i'm a holy game for this this sounds like fun okay are you ready i am okay ed of songs with the word baby in the title songs with the word baby in the title, um, this is uh, the best-selling physical single. And do you understand what I mean by that? Yes, it sold actual physical records or A CDs thing. or this cassette tapes. This is the best-selling, yeah, physical. This doesn't thing. count online downloads and airplay on radio or anything like that. Right, exactly. That's exactly right. Of of songs with the word "baby" in the title, this is the best-selling physical single. Okay, hang on. Um, I mean, I, just because of the... Okay, so there are obviously lots of songs that have had Baby in the title, and lots of them will have been big hits, but I feel like it wasn't until the 90s that you really started to see record sales bleed across markets, that there became a, a homogenized music market, that you you know you moved away from the sort of more traditional country and R&B and rock and roll and pop album sales all being different okay i'm gonna say baby one more time by britney spears oh i'm gonna play a little the real answer for you is it baby i love you that's a great song this is mr george mccray's 1974 classic rock your baby no kidding and the cool thing is we can play it right now because it's totally fair use Wow, so, okay. That's a good song, and I'm so sorry you did not get it. You are thus far... If this is a measure of your preparedness for fatherhood, you are thus far uh, unprepared. But I'm learning, J.D., and true. that's, that's true. the important thing. That's true. And a, a baby carrot is a carrot harvested before maturity and sold at the smaller size at which it's harvested. But a baby cut carrot is a small piece cut from a larger carrot. Baby cut carrots are often marketed as baby carrots, which could lead potentially to confusion. Um, Ed, when were baby cut carrots invented? I'm going to say 1994. So close, but wrong. 
Uh, it was actually in 1986 that carrot farmer Mike Urasek of Bakersfield, California, had an idea about what to do with the knobby, ugly, bent, unsaleable carrots in uh, in his harvest, which in some harvests could reach as high as 70% of harvest. Uh, he decided that rather than uh, turn them up or sell them for feed, which it's a little bit hard to sell them as an- for animal feed because they, they have the tendency to turn animal fat orange, which people, consumers generally don't like. So he decided rather than sort of do the things with them that did not yield him very much money, um, to cut them into two-inch pieces, to cut all the straight two-inch pieces that he could, and then to put them in an industrial potato peeler, which um, rounded off the edges, which smoothed them up. He packaged them. He sent them to a grocer. He said, I really th- going to think you're l- going to like this. And the next day, the grocer called him and said, from now on, we only want to buy this. And indeed, Mike Yurosek and his baby cut carrots have absolutely transformed the carrot economy of the United States. I, I feel like the name is, is a misnomer almost to the point of presenting a liability issue, because presumably if you're going to give a carrot to a baby... It should be a larger one that they can't choke themselves with. This is with. a good point. Yeah, this is a very good point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if they've thought about that or not. Well, I, I'm surprised that um, this hasn't been the subject of litigation. You would think that in a country where you consume McDonald's for your coffee being too hot, you could you could sue a farmer for marketing baby cut carrots that are unsafe for children. You know, I recently learned that um, the baby cut, or, or excuse me, the McDonald's coffee thing w- was a little bit more complicated than was let on, and that actually... Um, McDonald's had been warned several times that it was keeping its coffee well above industry standard and that its lids didn't stay on under various circumstances. And, you know, that they indeed had a fair amount of actual liability for the way that they were serving coffee to consumers. Oh. Yeah. The more you know. Well, the more you know. Yeah. Why anyone was getting their coffee from McDonald's when Dunkin' Donuts is right there. McDonald's is the worst coffee. It is absolute bile. Okay. And this is, by my calculation, the first baby who, in his own right is the central character of a biblical story. I'm going to go with who is Jacob? Uh, As a baby. Yeah, he came out clutching his brother's heel. That's some pretty baby action. That's true. I was thinking it was Moises, but I think you're right. Yeah. Okay, well well done, Ed. You are prepared (laughs) to raise a biblical baby. Well done. You are one for one for three, and uh, you know that's not that good. But um, but let's see if you can improve. Um, Ed, according to musician Anthony L. Ray, what has Baby got? Uh, back. Indeed, musician Anthony L. Ray Ed is better known as Sir, Sir Mix-a-Lot. Mix-a-Lot. And indeed, according to Sir Mixalot, Baby has got back. You're, you're, I'm on safe ground with this line of questioning. It's two and two. Now you're you're doing well. Ed, um, these people, aged between 75 and 57, love to say, okay. Baby boomers. Baby boomers, indeed. And the uh, the uh, 2019-ish catchphrase, okay, boomer, which I now realize was not so much their catchphrase as something that people like to say to them. But nevertheless, baby boomers, aged between 75 and 57, are associated with the phrase, okay. Well done, Ed. Let's move on. You are now above 500. I'm feeling more and more. Better and better about your preparation to be a father. Are you feeling better about it? I I feel like my kid is college bound at this point. Yeah, I mean I have no doubt. Okay, Ed, you're English, uh, aren't you? And uh, so um, what I want to ask you, Ed, is what? In fact, you're not English. I know that you um, you've recently been objecting to that, preferring a sort of pan-European identifier. Ed, you're British, aren't you? Ah, uh, yes. Okay. What I'm was, an Anglo-American yeah. by passport. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Ed, what was the best-selling? British single of 1999. I mean, that presumably was Baby One More Time by Britney Spears. I, I you was, did it. I was there in 1999. <laughs> I, it was not you, a well-received track in my school. Uh, and yet, and yet, you know, people said that at school, but they were obviously dancing to it at home because it was the best-selling British single of 1999. And there's an interesting thing about Baby One More Time. So Baby One More Time is in the 25 best-selling physical singles of all time. And towards the top of the best digital streaming singles of all time, but it is the top in neither. And I was thinking about this today as I was preparing this trivia just you know, an hour ago. And I think it was just at the wrong seam to achieve sort Fell of between two stools. either. Of the, yeah, right. That's exactly right. And thus could be neither. But it was nevertheless the best-selling British single of nineteen ninety. I was watching a, um, a documentary uh, the other day on 
a particular and the name escapes me now. I'd never heard it before, heard of them before, but uh, was it and I haven't. No, um, about a about a Swedish was music Lulu production Lulu? company that uh, that wrote. Was it um, ABBA? No, no, a production company, not a band, um, that basically was uh, in the and still is to today, but um, particularly in the '90s and early 2000s, was just this powerhouse of pop music production. Hmm. Um, and the reason why late '90s, early 2000s, American teen pop lyrics like Britney Spears' "Baby One More Time" or the Backstreet Boys' "I Want It That Way" have essentially gibberish lyrics. Is because they were all written by Swedes. Oh, that's interesting. And so the but you know they they was like it's you know it sounds all right, man. The Swedes you know? are in- fluent English speakers usually. They're fluent English speakers, but they do, you know they the the fact sure, that it's like sure, you know sure. the, yeah. these words don't actually make any sense when you put them together. It's like so what they sound good. Yeah. Well. Okay. Well, that's very interesting. Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Okay. You're doing really you're doing better and better, Ed. Um, Ed, let's talk about sports. Glenn Davis played as a power forward and a center in the National Basketball Association from 2000 until, excuse me, 2007 until 2015. And he attempted a comeback in 2019, but ended up playing in the National Basketball League of Canada. Canada. That's a real thing, the National Basketball League of Canada. I didn't just make it up. And Did they play on a smaller court? <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I think so. They must. And uh, and whatever the other CFL rules are. Um, at any rate, uh, he uh, he didn't make it back to the NBA. But Glenn Davis was there in the National Basketball League of Canada. And before that in the NBA, he has two nicknames. Ed, what are they? Babyface. Okay. And I don't know what the second one would be. Uh, Big Baby and Baby Beluga. Ugh. Now, Rats. Glenn Davis was a big guy, but he actually got the nicknames because he would cry a lot in practice as a kid, and his teammates would tease him. He was much bigger than them, but also something Harsh. of a crime. Yes, well, you know. That's, and that, that's boys, life for is big why baby. you should never let them see you cry. <laughs> Ed, don't believe 19... all of this Twitter gender-fluid nonsense. Boys don't cry, or it'll <laughs> follow you throughout your professional basketball career. Oh, boy. This 1968 horror movie was directed by noted creeper Roman Polanski. Oh. Don't forget the theme of the question. Yeah, I know. I'm clear it's going to be baby something. Um, I don't know. Rosemary's Baby. Rosemary's Baby. Yeah. Mm, sorry. Roman I thought Polanski is a horrible human being, isn't he? Ed, what is the first... Yeah. What is the first canon in the Code of Canon Law? Not to mention babies, but to mention infants. Oh, gosh. Uh... You can go to the law if you need to. Oh, I'm, okay. Well, this won't take long. I mean, we're definitely going to be in general norms one because this will just be the first invocation of probably ritual description, possibly. Uh, I'm going to say... What is the first canon in the Code of Canon Law to mention? Not babies, but infants. Uh, Infants. Hang on. Getting my code out now. I'm going to say... Somewhere in the 90s. Okay. We care to I'm going to go zoom in a little bit. I'll zoom in a little bit. Uh, mm. Oh, I was going to say any mini ninety seven, but that talks about minors and reaching of majority age and children yeah. under the age of seven. It doesn't say infants. Keep going. Uh, Read the next paragraph. A minor before completion of the seventh year is called an infant. An hey, infant. Canon 97, 97 you I did was right. it. Well cool. done, Ed. I'm really proud of you, sort of, by the way that you did that one. That was, you did it. Well done. You you, you seem most proud of that as a. As I am. I, I'll be honest with you. I honestly, I was like, if I can get within 10, I'll be really happy. Yeah, so. sure. You did. You did. And I was proud of you and I was impressed too. So well done. Okay. Um, this, let's see if this is the last question. No, this is not the last question. Ed, what's a, this is the lightning round though. Okay. Ed, what's a baby eagle called? Uh, 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 check an eaglet eaglet yeah baby eagle is called an eaglet sounds like something you'd have for breakfast ed what's a baby pig called um piglet ed what's a baby hedgehog called hedgelet oh a hoglet but you were close hoglet so a baby eagle is an eaglet a baby pig is a piglet a baby hedgehog is a hoglet what's a baby hawk called um hawklet you'd think but you'd be <laughs> wrong if you thought that it's called an eas and uh, an E-Y-A-S, an E-Y-A-S. And the reason why there's a particular name for a baby hawk is because baby hawks in the days of falconry were taken from the nest of their mothers, hand-fed by the falconer. 
so that they would have a, a close attachment to the falconer from their from the days of their youth in order that he might um, have loyalty and affection from them all the days of their life. Interesting. Yeah. Ed, what's a baby platypus called? Um, Do you remember? Oh, a trick question. This is a trick question because there's no such thing as a baby platypus because they're not real. They are. <laughs> they were all manufactured by a toy company. No, this is not. Did you? But actually, what's interesting about that, that you say that, did you know, by the way, that I went down sort of a platypus deep dive a week or two ago? <laughs> no, I did not know oh, that you went. yeah. I... I some, what, is, I, what is the technical term for the whole, for the subterranean home of a platypus, Judy? Oh, it's just his burrow. Um, and there are two kinds of plat. There are two kinds of platypus burrows. There's just the the ordinary sort of riverside burrow. But then, when a platypus mother is going to lay her eggs, she digs a very deep, long tunnel on a riverbank that can be as long as twenty two feet. Um, and at the end of that tunnel, she digs a bigger sort of hole, and there she makes a nest that she lines with leaves that she drags in under her tail, and she creates this environment where she lays the eggs. Now, here's what's really cool. Um, she, I, I didn't know I was going to be telling you this, but I went down this sort of rabbit hole the other week. Um, she um, creates a number. As she's leaving the burrow, every single time she's leaving it, she creates a number of false dirt walls with her tail. Um, and it's often thought that those walls, you know, so she puts up, you know, halfway down the tunnel and three quarters of the way down the tunnel and maybe a, a couple more. She puts up these false walls of dirt that make it appear as if that's the end of the tunnel. And she uses her tail to kind of pat them down and these kinds of things. And it's often thought that she's doing that to deter predators from finding um, the baby platypodes. And that might well be. Um, but there's another reason why she builds these false walls. And it's super interesting. When she is returning to the burrow, she has to go through each one of them. She sort of has to push her body straight through them. And in so doing, the dirt dries her off so that when she returns to the burrow where the baby platypodes live, um, there is she is dry. There's no water on her fur, and therefore they're not in a moist environment, which could make them sick. Wow. Is that cool or what? That That is a level of detail that I was not expecting when you began that story. Yeah, a baby I'm... platypus is called a puggle. <laughs> Sure it is. That's true. That's true. If they were real, that would be a great name for them. <laughs> if there's anything more you'd like to know about a platypus, you can let me know because I did go down this rabbit hole uh, recently. A, a male platypus, I don't know if you know this, but did you know that a male platypus has a venomous spur? That's one of the few things I knew about platypi oh, okay. is okay. that they are they have um, like emus. They are They are unexpectedly vicious and can sting you and hurt you and poison you. But the interesting thing about the uh, about the male platypus and his venomous spur is that um, he doesn't use it to protect the babies because the male platypus, after um, uh, after mating with the female platypus, has literally no interaction with the babies whatsoever. He's a deadbeat dad. Yeah, he is a louse. That's that's a shame. Yeah. Presumably, the the function of the venomous spur for the male platypus is just to deter humans from picking it up and examining it because it's such a ridiculous thing and yeah, that would be the natural reaction a, when seeing it no that's exactly right and and that venom will hurt you in various ways that i could describe having read uh, two scholarly articles <laughs> about right, platypus I, venom i i don't want to know too much but I'd, I'd like you to just on a par with what kind of commonly accessible venomous animal are we talking here? Okay, Cobra? so it has a very no, it has a very different kind of venom than snake venom. So it doesn't. So snake venom is a kind of neurotoxin, and platypus venom is different from that. And um, although it causes excruciating pain, um, it does. It, it's not neurotoxic, but it does cause um, huge amounts of swelling around the sting area, and um, and can cause, mu it's not clear, people are not sure whether it causes muscles to atrophy, because it causes temporary paralysis that can last for up to a month, and people don't know if the temporary paralysis is itself the cause of the atrophied muscles, in other words, you're just not moving that part of your body, or if in fact it is doing something more to atrophy your muscles. So it's like jellyfish? Uh, maybe, yeah, I don't know anything about well, jellyfish. Well, uh, jellyfish have excruciatingly painful stings that, you know, but but don't poison you in the way that... Do you know what a baby jellyfish is called? A squishy. <laughs> I wish it were. Tell me I'm wrong. I dare you. Uh, I wish that's true. They're called ephrae, uh, which I don't know. It's a Greek word. I don't know what it means. Okay. And this is the last question. As you might recall, before you got me on this platypus tangent, we were playing a little game called Are You Prepared to Be a Dad? And um, this is, and you're doing fine. You are prepared to be a dad. This is the last question. Um, and Ed, it's, it's, uh, it's a question that I think you're going to get right. Um, Ed, what is a bait? You, you've had, I'm sure, um, you know American candy. I mean, I'm sure you're more familiar with Smarties and Lion Bars or whatever they're called. But what is that Lion Bar called? 
Lion bars are delicious. Yeah, they're very, very good. Um, and you know what else are good? Um, one of those things with the, oh, an arrow. Have you ever had a, well, you're in, yes. you've had an arrow. Arrows are also very good. Um, but here in America, we have a candy bar called a Baby Ruth. And Ed, what is the Baby Ruth named after? I'm assuming the babe. Uh, the, By which you mean? Babe Ruth. Oh. George Herman Ruth, the baseball player. Oh. You'd think. But in fact... The candy maker who developed the candy company which developed the Baby Ruth, the Curtis Candy Company, although it was located um, on the same street as Wrigley Field, and although it renamed the bar from something else to Baby Ruth in 1921 as Babe Ruth's fame was on the rise, um, the twin the candy company insisted that the bar was named for the daughter of President Grover Cleveland, herself named Ruth. Now. Grover Cleveland had been out of the White House for 24 years. Um, his daughter, Ruth, had died 17 years previously. But the candy company, having no endorsement deal with Babe Ruth, insisted that the Baby Ruth was named for Baby Ruth Cleveland. That, you got to admire the chutzpah there. you got to admire the chutzpah. I think it's awesome, actually. And that was a North Chicago grift? Yes, it was indeed. Makes you proud. Yes, it does. It's kind of like well, those chiselers who write Wrigleyville on T-shirts so they can sell Cubs merchandise that doesn't have any <laughs> trademark for the team to, you know, tourists from Des Moines. My parents one time bought me um, a, 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 a bull sweatshirt, like at the height of bulls, uh, you know, the bulls popular. They bought me a bull sweatshirt, but um, in order to avoid um, having to pay anything, if you looked very carefully, the C in Chicago was a G. They bought me a Chicago bulls sweatshirt. Nice. It was nice. amazing. And on that note, Ed, I think you are well prepared to be a father. We do this right now because I don't even know if we'll see you next week. If the baby comes early, you will not be here. And uh, and uh, whoa, if that is the case, whoa, 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 there. You're I mean, in. You're in the front. You're in. If the baby's due at the end of the month, you're no. Now, I'm not disputing that we're we're in the window of yeah. Infinite you're in the possibility window. here. Mm-hmm. There's no question. This you know could be at any time. I'm just saying. You know, I, I I'm committed to taking paternity leave. I I will do this. I'd like to think that I'll still show up for the podcast on my newsletter. I don't think that you should do the show when you when the baby. Is, I don't know that. I mean, what if that's what if the baby's first memory of you is you leaving the baby to do the show? Eh, that's going to be a functional part of his childhood memories either way. I don't see any reason to trying to pretend for the first two weeks. Is my that's... experience. Well, then, unless Mrs. Condon is having a baby uh, at this time next week, we will see you then. Uh, the Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, JD Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner, Ed. He may be having a baby this time next week, Condon. And we, unless Mrs. Condon is at the hospital having a baby, we'll see you next week.